0: Scott Rabb wrote a story years ago about the ex-Cleveland State basketball coach Kevin Mackey that more or less changed everything that I ever had thought about what writing could be. It was raw and powerful and spoken in a true Cleveland voice, which is obviously meaningful to me as someone who grew up in Cleveland. Through the years, Scott has been... One of my favorite writers, one of my favorite people. Uh, he just retired over at Esquire, uh, but is still writing and actually is working on a sequel for from his first, very angry and powerful book, *The Horror of Akron*, about LeBron James. Uh, hoping this second one will end with a Cleveland championship. We talk about Cleveland. We talk about championships. We talk about Paul Newman and Bill Murray and some of the other great people he interviewed. But I began by asking him. What deli in Cleveland really makes the best corned beef sandwich? So I'm going to start where every good Cleveland conversation should start. You have been a huge, huge proponent of Slimans uh, and pastrami, and and it's great, but I I I really feel. <laughs> Through the years, you have totally underplayed Corky and Lenny's, and it's it's upset me. It's actually physically upset me.
1: It's not that I don't love Corky's. <laughs> and, and I go back to the Cedar Center Corky days when there was also Solomon's. I'm not trying to one-up you. <laughs> I'm simply saying there was Corky's, Solomon's, Jack's on Green Road, oh, sure. still a great deli. I guess I, I'm honing in uh, there on that particular sandwich. I mean, Corky's is a whole zeitgeist. Right. Corky's is a, is a country of its own. And and it, and it truly is. I mean, there are still times if I'm, I'm in town, if I'm back home, that's, that's where you meet people. Yes. It's in a category of its own. I'm coming at it, especially when I was I was writing about it for Esquire, from the platonic ideal of a corned beef sandwich. Because when it comes to atmosphere... The hours alone at Slimans—if you're not there when the corned beef runs out at 1:30 or 2 p.m., you're not eating a corned beef sandwich. It's closed. Yeah. So it's so, yeah. You're right to be upset. I, I I do think, for me at least, it's apples and blintzes. You know, it's just not the same thing.
0: You, I, I can see that, and and you're right. I mean, there is a purity about the Slimans. I, I will say, I grew up two blocks from Cedar Center, and just before they closed the Cedar Center Corkys. Uh, I took a friend over to Corky's sort yeah. of a sort of a goodbye and we walk in and yeah. I'm, I'm telling him all about what this place is meant to me and what it is and we go there and there's a sign please wait to be seated as you walk in there's a sign so we're kind of standing there and the waitress comes over to us and goes what are you waiting for there're open tables all over the place I mean just just <laughs> perfect just the perfect corky's moment so
1: yeah all right lot of attitude
0: our town our, our birthplace has not won a championship in 52 years now. And, you know, you and I have written more about it than, than any, well, we've written about it as much as just about anybody. We felt the agony of it. You actually were there at the last championship game. Uh, I was born three years later. So tell me, as you look at this Cavaliers team, actually playing great basketball and all of that, what kind of emotions are going through you right now?
1: I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, uh, this is going to really sound sound neurotic as hell, and and I guess it is. Uh, I'm fairly certain that the Cavaliers will come out of these and face whoever comes out of the West. I'm <laughs> I am so shaky in. in I, I think I'm optimistic at some level when I see. Kyrie Irving and Kevin love playing with this level of effort and intensity. I am hopeful. I am optimistic. I'm slow to trust. I think any Cleveland fan probably the older, the Cleveland fan, the slower, Uh, but, but I mean, legitimately, honestly, I don't believe Toronto's uh, young talent and and they do have more talent than they've shown in this series. Yes. uh, I I don't think they're serious threats to the Cavs. So, so, you know, I could get excited when I'm watching the Cavs, uh, you know, play with the kind of ball movement and focus that they've shown against the Pistons and Hawks. And then I put on a Warriors game and it's such a Cleveland thing. LeBron never saw it coming. I never, I don't know any, I mean, we all knew this was a great young team late with talent and Kerr while an unproven coach, everyone thought that was for the best. Uh, no one that I know of, no one that I read, you know, and respect, says, look out for a historically great. No. And they are, they were last year with the sixty-five wins and the the metrics. They they were a stunningly good team, and then then they improved. So I, I, you know, it's like Hercules, Joe. LeBron, if he's going to do this, or he's going to complete this mission that he took on himself when he came back. There are going to be many tasks, but I won't just be cleaning the stables or kill. he's going to have to really go through uh, something that, that are the Cavs going to be favored no. uh, against the Warriors? If everyone's healthy on both teams, I, I can't believe that they would be, not be heavy under, underdogs in that
0: series. Yeah, they'll be huge underdogs. You know, and, and your point about LeBron not seeing it coming, any not any of us seeing it coming. You know, wow. I fall into this trap, and and you sometimes pull me out of it, which is good. I fall into this Cleveland trap where, where it's not exactly self-pity, but it's like this expectation that things are going to go wrong. This, this, this sort of certainty that we are doomed to have something happen. And, you know, we get LeBron back just as he's, he's still a (laughs) great player, but he's not, he's not the best anymore. And he, he, they're good enough. I mean, last year, if they're fully healthy, they might have beaten that that Golden State team. That Golden State team had not quite peaked yet. Um, they scared them even without you know without Kevin Love and without Kyrie. Um, but now I you know that's the thing. I think I I think they breeze into the final. I don't think Toronto can beat them, and and then I think they they have no chance. I mean, it's like I don't want it to be that bad, and and you never know what's going to happen in in a in a series, especially when you have a player as great as LeBron. But I mean, that Golden State team is ridiculous. They're ridiculously good.
1: They're as good as any at, at, when when they're in the flow, and they they're in the flow more often. I mean, they that is the mark of a great team. While they're distinctly different from from, from the Jordan, you know, Bulls or, or the Showtime Lakers, you know, it's like the baseball reference comp scores. Right, the greater the player, the less close they really are in terms of of precision uh, comparison, but yeah, I, but I will suggest this. That What I saw, and to the extent I understand X's and O's, it's pretty limited in, in basketball for sure. But w- when when the Warriors went small in last year's finals, essentially that was a desperation move. That that I, I think you know the, the Cavs certainly uh, uh, were highly competitive uh, throughout the series. But when they went small, they ran the Cavaliers into the in hardwood
0: basically. Right.
1: So my my hope is. And I've seen Lou, in, in, you know, you can always discount the competition player for player when you're playing the Pistons and the Hawks and you have the Cavs roster. But I love the way Lou is coached against, you know, both Van Gundy and Bud. And, you know, what I'm hoping is is that with Kyrie healthy, with Love healthy, that somehow, and again, this with no disrespect to the first unanimous MVP in league history, that somehow the Cavs, in my heart, I believe this, even as detached as I can't be. They've got the best player on the floor every night. It's, his performance was majestic in last year's finals. So I can dream that dream and and kind of support it with with what I think is is you know reality. But but yeah, it's disheartening when you put on the TV, <laughs> and uh, you know they seem to be a pretty lucky team as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're. I mean, it's they're really really great and there's here's the thing about the Cavaliers I don't think they've done anything but improve as this season has gone on you know I mean I remember feeling pretty you know when when they when they fired Blatt and it seemed like LeBron had sort of engineered the whole thing and and, and certainly had on, on some level and then brought Lou in and you kind of felt like well that just that just seems like a team that doesn't really know what they're doing. And, 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 you know, they're kind of, they're, they're reaching and everybody's scared to death. LeBron's going to leave again and whatever, but you know, Lou has been, they, they have played different basketball with Lou and these three point things that they're doing here in the playoffs. And that's just a different looking team. Not to say that they're, that's going to make them competitive against, uh, against golden state, assuming it is golden state, but it is they've got their best shot playing the way they're playing now versus, frankly, the way they were playing under David Blatt. I think,
1: yeah, and they have the best shot of any other team in the NBA. I mean, I, I really do. I think a couple of things, and I and I, I I'm I'm working on a on a on a book, you know, a, a sequel of sorts uh, to the angry book when sure. LeBron left. <laughs> and, and the people that I talk to, uh, you know, and, and the people who who are better reporters than I am, and people who are closer to the team. I think that was an issue. I, I really do. I think Blatt, in general, the the antagonistic tone that he established with all the media members was not separate from, in some ways, his his aloofness or his detachment or his distance from the team. It's not. It's not to to, to slander a guy who clearly is a, is a winning coach, oh, right. uh, but he he. I, I don't think he was part of the solution once the, LeBron's return was in place. And the Wiggins for love, et cetera, and, and so I, I think there was a real, a real gap there. The other thing is I'm not sure, especially given Barajas' departure, it was was essentially a luxury tax savings thing, portrayed as a trade. I don't know how much leverage LeBron really has. That the the guy who owns the team, he's a pretty erratic guy, Dan Gilbert. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that David Griffin or, or Dan uh, really. Really takes orders from, or even necessarily runs everything by LeBron. I'm I'm not trying to, to to say that I know this. I don't, but just in reading the tea leaves, doesn't seem to me that that that's all that much different than Mickey Harrison of, of the Heat and the stating Mike Miller.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't believe. I think these things tend to get way. Overplayed because it's it's an oh, easy yeah. story. So so you, you go with the easy story. and LeBron's running the team or whatever. But I do agree with your point. Look, I wanted to like David Platt. I mean, there was there's so much to like about the guy. I mean, you love his international you know history and you know the guy really built himself up and and he seemed like a Cleveland guy and and when you could get him uh, in in a in a in a sort of you know quiet atmosphere. He, he's very, very smart, and he obviously knows the game. And, oh, yeah. You know, there's a depth oh, yeah. to him. So really, really like him, but it really wasn't working. And I think his relationship with LeBron, it wasn't so simple to me. It wasn't so simple as LeBron wasn't respectful enough to him, or they just didn't quite speak the same language, I think.
1: And, and I think there were moments where LeBron, intentionally or not, Embarrassed him publicly in a way he would. He he did it with Spolstra early in the twenty ten you know twenty eleven season, but not as flagrantly right? And and not as consistently. I, you know I think I go back to to last year's playoffs. The, the timeout that wasn't called against the Bulls. I, I think I think you know while Blatt had every right to be proud, not to necessarily lead with the fact that he was you know a, a championship coach around the world. Uh, rightly proud of his track record, at the same time, he didn't look, you know, like a wartime consigliere in last year's playoffs. I uh, Lebron called him out about that inbounds play, and and that was a breach of protocol. And and you can question Lebron's motives uh, for doing that, but the fact is, the head coach in last-second buzzer-beater situation with the game and the balance had Lebron inbounding the ball. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that whole that that whole stretch of time like you said with the timeout that that didn't get caught which oh, he might have gotten fired oh. literally that night if if, they, if he he blows the game because he called out yeah. they didn't have i mean <laughs> it was it was a nightmare and you know he really reminded me i mean this is a, a you know for me a baseball thing i wrote it at the time that he got fired when when the kansas city royals brought in trey hillman uh, from Japan, where he was a championship manager, Trey kind of came in with the same attitude, which was, hey, uh, I'm a championship manager, I've been around, you know, players, great level, you know, high level players, and I've won the big games, and And the, it doesn't matter how true it is, I mean, I think Blatt's uh, resume is way better than Trey's even was, but it doesn't matter how true it is, it matters if the players buy it. That's really all that matters. Yep. Do, do the players look Here. up at you and go, "Yeah, you're a championship coach"? They didn't do that with David Platt. They saw a guy who's like, "Yeah, you you coached in Israel and 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 whatever, and that's fine, and it, that's that's nice, but that's not the NBA, and you've never coached our level of, of talent."
1: It, it, an impossible. It, I think it really was an impossible situation on both sides. It, you know, David Griffin made the move and brought, you know promoted Lou and got rid of Platt. He he used words like connectedness and joy. Yeah. You know, and, and and you hearing a GM talk like that doesn't doesn't necessarily excite me. Little mushy, <laughs> a little mushy. But but as we watch them, as we watch them play, and and they really do, they do seem to have uh, not just a, a a certain trust in each other, but uh, kind of, I think when I see Kevin Love looking beastly, like he really wants the rebound. And he has played that way from the opener against the Pistons through the Hawks series so far. When I see him play that way, when I see Kyrie, you know, start slow, but but taking his shots, I give LeBron, neither Lou nor Bled, but LeBron a lot of credit for, for forcing those guys to give more than they had been giving. I mean, the Kevin Love that we've seen most of the past two seasons, we, we don't have to revisit the trade to agree he's been, more than something of a disappointment. Sure. I love the way they're playing right now. I really can get excited about that until I see the Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I,
0: I had that experience yesterday where I was watching that Miami-Toronto uh, game, yeah. <laughs> and then you flip yeah. over to the Golden State game, and you're like, oh, this is not the same. This is They're playing no. different. And And really, you're watching it going, Portland destroys either of those other two teams. You know? I mean, it's just... It's it really it feels like it's a roll right. up, but you and I both know we've seen it through the years because we've seen it with Cleveland teams that were better um, matchups. You, you just don't really know yep. how the matchups are in the in in games that matter. Forget the regular uh, season stuff. Matchups in these kinds of games with a Kevin Love that that I agree. I think the last three weeks has been this was the player that they got. I mean, this was the play. I, I didn't see him that much in Minnesota. So all I saw were the numbers, and then I see him, you know, in Cleveland. I'm like, well, I, I have no idea how he put up those numbers. Obviously, they had nothing around him, with Kyrie playing driven basketball and and taking his shots and all of that. I, look, I don't think they're as good as Golden State, but I think your point is right. There is enough there that you can kind of hope a little bit. Uh, I think
1: there's more more than just a puncher's chance yeah. if they're healthy and and playing in tune, moving the ball, and all that. I, I I do think, and I'm not even talking about the wrath of Delhi, you know, Bella Vidova uh, <laughs> not having to play full games against Steph Curry. Uh, I, I do, you know, I just think they have the kind of depth and the kind of combination. I, I hate to think that we'll wind up with the ball in J.R. or Channing Frye's hands, uh, you know, in a game seven situation, but it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be pretty. And i uh, sorry, it's not going to end well.
0: Yeah, well, let's all we can do is hope. Um, you know the yep. the, the idea Always. the idea of this of this podcast is is stories, uh to tell stories. <laughs> so which we are doing, but I have to ask you. So because I have a very specific one and it might be similar to yours. What is your bottom wrong moment as a Cleveland sports fan? What is what is dead bottom for you?
1: Uh, that bottom would have been Game Seven in '97. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that would have been. You know, at, at that point, uh, it's not about which is your favorite sport or your favorite team. It's you're going into the ninth inning of Game Seven with a front run. <laughs> so that was yeah, that that was really really bad.
0: Yours? Well, mine your... is mine is is Red Right '88. And I know,
1: I've I've read you on that subject.
0: Please yeah. Proceed. Well, it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not because it was the worst. I mean, it was really, really bad. Um, but it's because I was at the time uh, thirteen, uh, yep. closing on a fourteen, and I didn't know yet. I didn't. I didn't know Cleveland was cursed yet. Uh, my no, none of us did. No, my whole childhood and your sort of college and teen years, Cleveland just had bad teams. That happens. That that happens. Right. So they had a decade right. where they had terrible teams all the way around. And you and I have talked about how, uh, you know, my hero is Dwayne Kuyper. You hated yeah. Kuyper and those teams because they were just so mediocre. And, and that's all they were. They were just so mediocre. Yeah, I spent a lot of time
1: at the stadium watching those teams and just really gnashing my teeth between yeah. hot dogs, of course. Of course. But yeah,
0: <laughs> they were awful to, awful to watch. Awful to watch. So you had bad Cavaliers teams, you had bad uh, Browns teams, and you had bad I- Indians teams. They were just bad. And then eighty comes and that team was so charmed because you look back at that team, they they weren't that good. I mean, you we, we both know they weren't that good. But Brian Slipe had this sort of magical year. They they came from behind a bunch of times. Uh the defense was better than people thought, and the weather helped, and it was just a it was just magical. <laughs> And then that it Raiders worked. game, and honestly, when he threw that interception, I would never have been able to put it into words uh, at the time. But what somewhere deep in my heart, my feeling was, wow, well, they're, they're never winning a championship. My feeling was just so it just it just cut to the depth of my soul because it was it was the moment where I thought, okay, look, other teams. Win championship. Other cities seem to win championships. <laughs> <laughs> so Cle- Cleveland's a, is is a great city. It, it, you know Cleveland's going to win championship. So yeah. So then after that, I mean, not to say that that all of the other disasters weren't exhausting and painful. In '97, I was there at the game, and and you know I was writing it, and you know that just just watching the disaster that was that ninth inning and then that extra. It was just it was horrifying. But by then, I already kind of knew, you know. Even though that Indians team was so good, you thought they were immune from it. By then, it was like, yeah, that's kind of who we are.
1: There was that that first one that that Red Right 88. It was that that first one. That's the one that 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 hurt the most.
0: Yeah, that was the one that, that hurt the most. But I mean, for for like a like a game, I mean, nothing hurt more than Modell moving the team out. I mean, that's oh oh god, yeah. yeah that's a total... people don't. People don't really get
1: that, you know. I mean, I mean. In other words, I, I I worry, and with probably with good reason. I do so much whining and writing, and whining about you know Cleveland never winning a championship. What tends to get lost is imagine the Bears m- moving from Chicago. Well, I know, I know that the Colts left left Baltimore and all that, but good lord, that that was that was. Uh, uh, not a gut punch. Or, you know, whatever stupid metaphor you want to use, that that was really like losing a limb. Yeah. And to have that franchise replaced the way it has been by perhaps the worst franchise in, in American professional sports right now.
0: I think so. Uh, yeah, I
1: know. And, and they, might, you know, they might be on the verge of something better, but I'll have to see that before I believe it. Well, I, I remember I was, I, I was older than you. I remember when, when Takara never got to kick the field goal. I just walked out. I was running a bedroom somewhere in Cleveland Heights, and I just walked out into the cold. And I don't even—I didn't black out. I just remember wandering. I was just stunned.
0: It was so stunning. It was—it was so stunning. Um, when the Browns left Cleveland, uh, and you know we—we we can go over that agony as, as many times as we want. And then the new Browns came. What was sort of your first reaction to the new Browns?
1: I was I was pretty disgusted that Al Lerner, who who helped, he was part owner of the old Browns and helped arrange the deal that that enabled Motel to steal the team that that he wound up being the owner. I, I I've never been a believer in curses or anything like that, but I, my 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 disgust at the NFL allowing that move to happen was matched by uh, you know to, to me it just looked like pure not corruption you know in the sense of bribing a politician, but just ugly that a billionaire who helped helped facilitate the departure of the team suddenly winds up with a freshly minted stadium and NFL franchise in Cleveland. Yeah. That's disgusting. Yeah.
0: I just found them to be very, very difficult, not just because they were terrible. You kind of knew that was going to happen for at least a little while. I just found myself very, very hard to warm up to them. I just, it's, they never felt like, in some ways, you know, I remember there was such a big deal made when the Browns left about keeping the name and keeping the history and how how important that was and how much they fought to make that happen and all of those things. And yes, I, I will admit when I watch the Browns now and see the similar, although not identical uniforms, which don't, don't get me started on the orange, I don't even want to... <laughs> but when but when I see that I do feel like a uh, little bit of connection. But honestly, and part of me thinks they should never they you know what? You move the team, take take the name. You you stole that to, they'll, they'll, these aren't the Cleveland Browns. They're not the team oh boy. That I grew up with, at least for me. I mean I now, now I am coming Fair around, not. it's taken me whatever, fifteen years. I am coming around to it now, but for years that was a real problem for me.
1: If, if if I don't know if you've ever spent any time at all in the Muni lot before a home game <laughs> since the Browns have come back, but but it it's as terrifying an experience. You know, I'm trying to think. There was a Juliar, Cesar, Chavez. Anyway, a uh, flight Mexico City where I was scared in the crowd <laughs> because I thought I was going to get stampeded. But I, I, my point is. You and I are in sensitive situations and and I only say that because, yeah, we're homies, you know, we bleed brown and orange or wine and gold, or whatever color the tribe is wearing, we're wearing today, yeah. But, yeah but we we' we were part of the exodus, and i I think we don't have to apologize for that, even though I wrote a book about LeBron called "The Border of Akron. I don't apologize for it because making it as a writer in Cleveland is not going to happen right for 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 anyone, including guys like you and me. Uh, and our careers take us where they take us, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I, I just worry about how easy it is for me to say, you know what? It would have been better. It would have been better just, just pr- with no football team. As ugly as that Muni lot is, this is still one of the few things Cleveland has left. It doesn't keep uh, us exiles uh, bound to the city and feeling our feelings, but it really does in a very concrete Sunday to Sunday way, give families and friends outside of the community lot a chance to get together, you know, and, and for fathers and sons and daughters to go to get, I don't want to be the distant pundit who hails from Cleveland, but didn't go through that as a Clevelander. the departure of the Browns and the return of this horrible NFL team. You know, I just, I worry about that. Sometimes I pass judgment or speak and realize I might not have the standing to someone who has built a company in Cleveland and never left the city
0: no, I and own
1: season tickets.
0: I agree yeah. with all of that. Look, I, th- th- believe me, when I say that, I mean, obviously it's, it's great that the team came back, and, and like I say, Cleveland wanted it to be called the Browns and wanted the colors and wanted that. So it's, great. Yeah. it's all great. I just found um, it. No, as, yeah. Yeah. From afar. Definitely. I found it difficult. And I go back, you know, all the time. And, and when I go back, I'm, you know, in a way it's, it's, it's a little bit jarring for me because I think people did not have the same difficulty in Cleveland, re-embracing them as the Cleveland Browns. I think for a lot of them, the day they came back, they were the Cleveland Browns again. And that's the way it should be. They they live there. And they live in Cleveland. They should, they they never should have had the team taken away in the first place. So absolutely,
1: absolute, absolutely, yeah. So and, I, there, and and the team is a disgrace. Yeah. that that's really the issue. It's a disgrace that team.
0: How in the world does it get that bad?
1: I, I, I you couldn't in a, in a sport where parity where everything is set up, you know, to funnel every team toward success, right? Right, you know, non-guaranteed contracts. Nobody really gets traded of any value whatsoever. It's all built through the draft. The payrolls are equal. It would be impossible. It would be impossible to manipulate something this awful. <laughs> you,
0: you couldn't do it if you tried, Joe. It's, you couldn't. It's really true. You look, and and this is this is the hardest part for me about watching a really really bad team. Obviously, I saw it uh, firsthand in Kansas City for a long time. Uh, yep. follow yep. the Browns very closely and, you know, especially the last couple of years and in watching them, they're not drafting guys that other teams don't want. I mean, Manziel was a weird, you know, that was a weird one, but these other guys, I mean, people wanted Markavius Mingo, people wanted, uh, you know, all of these guys that have turned out to be major busts. It's not like you look at the draft book and you go, you know, hey, well, how good is this guy? And it says in there, oh, nobody except Cleveland would take him. I mean, it, these guys—it's something—it's something broken, and and maybe it is something that is getting fixed now. This, I really do feel like this regime that's in now—I don't know how—I don't know if they're great, but I know they're different and they're smart. So I think that's that's promising. But it's almost like there was something so broken inside that organization that good draft picks would turn bad uh you know good coaches would would lose their minds uh and and their inability and unwillingness to stick with anything you know just yes. completely infected the whole team i it's yes. it's you you want to teach a course on how to ruin a football team that's what you want to do
1: i i think any organization has a culture i mean it, it, it's 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 ob- so obvious it sounds stupid but every workplace has a culture every family has a culture and and that's what you have when you when you make bad hires or don't make stability a priority or don't, you know, when you, when management turns, turns over, turns over coaches, there's no system, there's no continuity. And, and you have a series of increasingly poor decisions made by people who aren't invested in long-term success. I mean, it, it could be a restaurant. If you ran any business that way, any household that way, you would run it straight into the ground. Yeah. I, I don't know the answer. We know that De Podesta is too smart in a systemic sense. I mean, the question isn't whether he can judge a football player as well as he can judge a baseball player. That is the issue with De Podesta. It's can he put systems in place that maximize the value of, of, of any organizational decision. So that part, I believe, Hugh Jackson, I believe, again, like kind of with the Cavs and the Warriors, we're talking about a team that is is a doormat in the AFC North, a very tough division. But if there are reasons for hope.
0: Yeah, and for the first time, it feels like there are reasons for hope. And your point about a restaurant and about the way that that you can run any business—honestly, the Browns have run a restaurant. It's like being in a restaurant where every single night somebody goes. Or what? Are we a Mexican restaurant tomorrow? Like what restaurant are we tomorrow? Like we we we've been an Italian. That's not working. We, you know, throw out right. all the pasta. I mean, it's just really we,
1: we, we have a we have a potential good chef coming out of Texas A and M, but he drinks a bit. Drinks a bit.
0: But I think he's. But he's good though. He's good. Oh, hey, he's good yeah you should
1: it's... see him with a knife oh god
0: <laughs> all right so now we're going to break away from our cleveland stuff we're going to actually i'm going to have you try to tell a couple of stories for this thing uh you just okay. retired from yeah from esquire yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm fully embracing the word retirement and um. <laughs> and i've always i i have you know you know how much i love your work and one of the things Thank I love you. is what's, you know, which I think is is essential for some of the kinds of things you've done is you're writing about Bill Murray and you're writing about Paul Newman and you're writing about, you know, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman or whatever the case may be. And these people have been written about extensively uh, from, from a million different angles and you have to come in there. And, and what I think you try to bring to it is a, is a certain authenticity that, 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 Takes you up to a different a different level of not just understanding them, but but being able to see them in a in a different way. So when you are going into an idea, and let's take Paul Newman because it's one of my favorite connections that you've had. When you when you're you know given an assignment to write about Paul Newman, what is sort of your mindset? Like what are you thinking about about how you're going to try to make this work? So the
1: the first thing that I try to do is assemble as much material as i can i watch as many of his movies read as much as has been written about him that sort of thing if he's been on the actor's studio show or biography has done a thing i I will assemble all the material i can and and it varies with the time frame but however long i i I have i will immerse myself in that stuff and i'll make copious notes at at the same time I, i think it's the same as not just any, any good journalist would try to do, but uh, any seminar student would try to do, because there's going to be a paper at the end of it, and you better know the material, first of all. You better be prepared to meet this person. You're one of 10,000 people who's shown up with a recording device, and and, and the hope the hope that the chemistry clicks, and, and it's a, I, I've never taken it one of those first dates for granted at all. I, I, I tend to operate the same way I, I did when I finally started taking a college seriously which, which is you know, I want I want to be ready I want to show the, the other party the respect uh, that a junket journalist who has to sit around with 15 others I mean I I get I get the privilege of, of if I'm carrying the Esquire name you know that's a transactional experience there's a movie and we need a cover but there's also there's a human connection and so the only way I can get to that with someone like Paul Newman, whose work I revere, yeah, it's more than slightly in awe. Is is to study it so that I can have a conversation that starts somewhere, and I don't have to pull out a list of questions. I have notes, little little bullet points I refer to, but yeah, I really try and and dive into everything a person has done.
0: So when you see him for the first time, and 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 you know, obviously, who doesn't revere Paul Newman? By the time you interviewed Paul Newman. He was, he was, he's like, he was such a legend on so many different levels on the business side and on the, you know, but he was also, he was also like something out of another time, you know, by the time you interviewed him he was, you know, he was, you know, people said he was, you know, Brando. I mean, he's from that, from that time and place. He's also a Cleveland guy. So do you have in your mind how you're going to, how you're going to start? Do you have in your mind how this story is going to go? before you before you actually meet with him? No. Or, or do you just go, hey, I have all the information, now it's just let it flow as it goes?
1: That That's pretty much let it flow as it goes. I, I'm I'm subject to, I, I'm in no control of the, the amount of time I get. Once I meet him, you know, sometimes there are things arranged in advance between Esquire's person who deals with publicists and, and Paul Newman's publicist. In this case, it was much less formal, but I, I still didn't know how much time, I would be able to spend, whether I'd be able to visit him again, that, that sort of thing. So as as much pressure as I feel to make sure that I don't leave anything out, I don't go into it thinking, I sometimes I'll have a joke, not in Paul Newman's case, you know, I'll have something, you know, that I can bring out. Like you would literally, you would rehearse before you pick someone up on a date for the first time. You know, you, you might think about what it is you were going to (laughs) say. But I'll go. I'll go anywhere from there. And I, and I think to the the authenticity thing, which which is a wonderful thing to say. Uh, but one of the things that I think Cleveland gave me that I could never repay is this sense of if I try to be someone I'm not, if I try to be a smooth talking journo, you know, or a guy who's—I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a horrible name dropper. If I meet someone like Paul Newman, because I'm not. You know, I'm not averse to mentioning someone that I that I've interviewed that I know works with him as a way in. But generally, I I show up really a little bit cowed, but also it, it, this is the Cleveland thing. It's like you know what, I'm just me, and my only shot at get getting a good date here is to be myself.
0: Yeah, is Paul Newman the coolest guy you've ever met?
1: Well, he's right up there, but he's quiet, man. That that's a tough interview. I think I wrote something in that, yeah. in that, uh, at that piece where I said, you know, if, if the pause was so long that you could really, you know, make a soccer goal out of it, you know, it was like just waiting. I couldn't tell if he was snoozing or thinking he just isn't a lively interview and it, it went better in different places. Uh, although he was racing, he was taking a shift at Daytona at the 24 hour uh, Le Mans. And so I went down there he didn't like seeing me there, but I wanted to see him race. Uh, outside of that he was very friendly and very 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 warm, uh, but a very quiet, thoughtful guy who doesn't love doing press at all. So I, I was I was quiet too. I tried to be quiet. Do
0: you do you try to match people's perspectives? I mean Yes. You, you have to, right? Yes. Yeah,
1: I, I do. And one of the reasons I love interviewing stand ups is that anything goes and you can't really make a mistake and they'll say anything, and they're really Generally smart, self-educated mostly, but really smart, sharp, thoughtful, observant, all, all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I, am, I am subject to, uh, I, I had to interview Taylor Swift knowing very little about her or her work. And I pulled an all-nighter and, and, and nervous as hell. And she turned out to be warm, wonderful, funny, easy to be with uh, a, a good eater which is important if you're doing an interview over a meal. You want someone to eat. So you, are they comfortable enough to eat? If so, that's, it's good. It's all good. But, yeah, I'm always worried. Uh, I, I very rarely lose myself in, in the conversation or connection because it really is difficult both to feel the vibe and figure out where to go next and, and also just kind of to be a mensch. I mean, I, wanna, I really do want to connect with someone, as goofy and cliche as it sounds, I've learned a lot over the years by listening to people talk about what they, these are generally really successful people. And a lot of what they talk about in terms of how they got there is transferable to, you know, my, my hopes and dreams. Sure. Uh, so I, I, I love that part of the job and, and, you know, to the extent I, I'm, I'm good at it. It's because I really do get excited about this stuff.
0: Well, yeah. Isn't curiosity sort of the biggest thing going? That's why I always tell young people, oh, yeah. you know, you just, you, it has to be boundless. Curiosity. I mean, you really have to—not to say that you're buying every little thing that they say or anybody says—but you, no, it's got to be interesting to you. It's got to be interesting, and people can tell if they're not interesting to you. I think
1: I absolutely agree, and and people are sensitive to it. Even even the stars are sensitive to it. But I once spent a few days in Los Angeles tailing Ryan Seacrest because my my, my boss David Granger recently. A retired editor of Esquire thought it would be funny to have you know uh, a lug like me hanging out with 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 Ryan Seacrest, and and I was in awe of of the guy. I mean, he does like four hours of morning radio five days a week in Los Angeles. He was hosting American Idol, and it was really hot then. And he had his own production company to follow in the footsteps of, uh, of his hero, uh, Dick Clark. So you know, there was a guy. Who I didn't connect with, and vice versa, on very many levels at all. But it was awesome to see the guy work.
0: It's amazing. All right, who is for you personally? And this doesn't have to be represent how how easy or hard they are to deal with. Who was the toughest interview you ever had?
1: Tommy Lee Jones, and and it it wasn't. Uh, I think a lot of people would say that who've interviewed a lot of yeah. celebrities. Yeah, I, I, I mean, he was just a prickly guy, and and you know, a really smart guy, Harvard undergrad. I brought him a little gift, and and all that, and, and he loosened up eventually. But it, at one point, I remember saying to him, "You're not, you're not really an introspective guy, are you?" He said, "I am when someone's paying me to be." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nick, Nick Cage, you know, to early on when I was still kind of finding my feet and I was doing, you know, bad, the bad boys, Mickey Rourke, Sean Ten, you know, guys like that. I remember the chemistry with Nick Cage was really crappy and I, and I tried to to get a little friction going and I made it even worse when, when he had gotten an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas and then he'd done a series of Jerry Bruckheimer films, The, the Rock, Con Air and, and. and I just remember saying, because I, 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 I wasn't really thinking, I was thinking about how strange the choices were for a guy who had won the Best Actor award and clearly had both range and that kind of unique thing that, that A-listers have. Why, why are you making these action movies? But I didn't say that. I said, you know, I was watching The the Rock and, and it occurred to me it's a lot like uh, pornography. You know, there's a certain number of beats between the bloodshed. You know, really doesn't matter what's there. There, and he didn't. He didn't like that. Didn't buy it at all. Did he? No, no. (laughs) He felt insulted. And now, with the wisdom of age and experience, I understand why.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a tough one. I mean, to me, there—that's a. I I think it's happened to all of us. But you'll take the interview in a certain direction, feeling like you know maybe it's not going that well anyway. Hey, I need to shake things up to try to make this a little bit better. And it almost always, at least for me. Completely fails. It could just completely yes. flops. It's, it's, it's amazing. Not... Yeah. I was interviewing a NASCAR driver and, yeah. um, and, and I'm not going to even say who it was, but I, I was interviewing a NASCAR driver and I'd been told again and again and again and again, how great this guy was. He's like a, like a hardcore old school Driver, you know, like the old days, you know, the, you know, just, just thinking nothing but cars and which I, I find cool because it's completely the opposite of me. I mean, I, I love that, you know, and, and I, I'd had a couple of really good interviews with some of these very old school drivers. So I really was excited and I was going and it was so clear he didn't want to talk to me. I did no interest in me. And at some point, I basically used uh, the line I said, you know, look, um, I, I know nothing about cars, nothing at all about cars. And before I could even finish the question, he, he said, I'm not here to educate you about NASCAR. And really? yeah, that's, that's that's an ender right there. That's a, it's, that's a, yeah. that's an interview ender, um, which is, yeah. you know, that's, it's, you do what you can do, but you know, what about the other way you mentioned Taylor Swift, which I love, who uh, surprised you how awesome they were.
1: Sean Penn, from the very, I've written about him a few times over the years, but this was, this was back at G. in 1997, and I was, I was intimidated, partly because it was young Sean Penn, and he'd already done, I think, a 30-day local, you know, county jail thing for attacking a photographer when he was married to Madonna, and I I loved the guy's work, but, you know, I just didn't know, so I brought, I think I brought a book, the Grail Marcus book about, Bob Doan, I yeah. think. I, and we went out on his boat. You know, we chased a blimp. Uh, <laughs> saw him the next night at a bar. And, and we got together, you know, for, for magazine-related stuff. And, and uh, yeah, he turned out to just, just be an, a really e- easy, sincere, earnest, likable, you know, special guy, good guy.
0: Interesting. Interesting, because yeah. that would yeah. not, especially... With recent uh, recent news with with him, that would not be where people would go with that with with Sean Penn generally.
1: Well, you know, he's always been a guy who who, who put his heart where where, and he walked the walk. I mean, he did it in New Orleans. He did. He's done it in Haiti. Sure. Uh, the El the El Chapo thing, probably not a good idea. <laughs> uh, but but I, I've always admired the fact that whether it was a questioning, he was going to quit acting back when I interviewed him for the first time. And I've talked to other actors, you know, other young, very male actors who felt like acting just was a meaningless, difficult, but meaningless and trivial ultimately. And in Mickey Rourke's case, it meant starting a boxing career, but in Sean Penn's case, he kept acting and he's directed some really good movies, but he's also in his way. He has been a humanitarian and I do I don't agree with everything he's done. I think politically I'm pretty close to him, but the the El Chapo thing I still can't figure out. But my, my general my, in general, my respect for him was not diminished by that. No,
0: well, I mean, it, it was it was what it was, as the horrendous cliche goes. Uh, two more people I'm going to ask you about. Uh, the first one, and I sent you a fairly lengthy email about it afterward because it, it, it touched me so much, was when you went home – uh, with Philip Roth, and I know that was something that was particularly special to you. I'm sure your admiration for Philip Roth is, you know, it's well known. Uh, it's an amazing story. That whole experience of 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 not only writing that story, not only you know meeting him and 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 all of that, but going back to to his home in Jersey, really for the first time in a in a long time. What was that whole experience like for you?
1: Uh, it, it was. It was. Uh... They're better than a dream come true yeah. because a writer who, who opened my eyes, I was 17 when Portland's nice Complaint came out and it opened my eyes to the, to the, the, the utter freedom of fiction writing, yeah. which is what I used to, what I used to do. And, and because he was, he was in a, a mainstream of, of Jewish novelists and short story writers, but was more prolific and, and kept, kept churning them out. Uh, you know, I was in such awe of him. That it, and he had said no, not directly to me, but you know, through his representatives to Esquire so many times. And when it finally happened, it turned out what he wanted to do was go back and visit the old neighborhood in Newark. I oh, I couldn't believe it. I, I showed up really early. He, he, he has a, an apartment uh, on the Upper East Side. So I showed up at the Esquire offices, and my boss couldn't figure out why I was there so early. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. You know, all I could do was was drink coffee and and just pace, uh, and, and and that was a, a wonderful thing. And one of the one of the things that happened is, that I think about now is as I'm getting older in my dotage, we went back to Weequahic High School where where Philip Roth went to school. With pictures on the wall, along with many others on the Wall of Saint. But when we tried to get you know passes so we could walk through the halls. They had no idea who Philip Roth yeah. was. Yeah, and, and and you know, you, you needed uh, armed security to go. no no one could wander through a city school in Newark unescorted. Uh, it just it just brought home both, you know, what Philip Roth uh, I I consider you know a, gi- a giant, a giant uh, among you know arcs and letters giants, and and nobody knows who he is, and everything is. I feel that way about Cleveland sometimes. I don't know about you. You know, I go back and the city that I love only exists in my mind. I mean, literally only exists in my mind. And, and with Roth, uh, he, it's not that he was at, at all downcast or offended by the fact He, you know, to him it was a very rich irony. To, to me, it was the whole day was just, it's still dazzling that I spent a day with Philip Roth. And we went to a deli and ate, you know, he doesn't eat, eat corned beef anymore. But, uh, uh, it was, you know, it was magic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. That had to be the greatest. That'd be the greatest. You know, it's funny though. You say that about Cleveland because I, I have found a little bit different experience and maybe it's just because, you know, my grandmother still lives on the street where I grew up and she lives like three houses down and, and, you know, I, I don't think there are too many of the same neighbors. The, the neighborhood is, is turned over obviously, but but the house that I grew up in is still there. And, and even though Cedar center is now it's, you know, they've got like a whole foods there, which what, what is that, you know? Um, but even though that's changed my neighborhood and, and, and the areas where I, you know, grew up and, and, and rode my bike and all, that that's all the same. So I kind of, every time I return home, I, I feel home in a way that's different from any place else. Not, you know, I've really, if I had to say what home is for me, it's really Kansas City because that's you know where my my wife's where my kids were born it's it's you know where I lived you know for most of my adult life and all of that but there's yep. a there's a connection that I feel in Cleveland and maybe that is because where where I grew up is still relatively intact I guess
1: yeah I, I guess you know my experience has been because last season when I was hoping to write, the sequel based on the cabs winning a championship last year, I kind of dug in on the West side in a condo in Brook park And over the years. The more times, the more time I've spent in the city, the sadder the city seems to me. And it, it's not so much because the houses are still there. Right. And the streets are still, uh, still there, but it, it's, I, and again, it's, it's, it's an old man talking I mean, Cleveland was still the seventh largest city That's in the right. country. Yeah, you know w- w- when I was coming up. So, so I think I think like walk, walking from one place to another downtown, seeing the beautiful neoclassic architecture and the broad broad boulevards, and there's no one, there's no one on the streets outside yeah. of the casino. There's really no foot traffic at all. I know people are in offices working, but there's, you know, I, as part of it for me is is when I want one of those teams to win a championship. I don't. I don't tell myself that it's going to lift the city in a in a lasting meaningful sense. It's going to take more than a champ a championship I think would help actually, but it's not going to be enough to to I want Cleveland to succeed and I think part of what I feel there isn't what's missing literally, but is that sense of god, the city's not coming back the way I I had always prayed it would
0: well i I definitely feel that downtown you're you're right and and for me, downtown was just the trips we would take up to to go to Indians games or go to the Higbys, which is gone and and yeah, and, and yeah. all of that so you know, but that was the only time I went, but you're right, I mean it is depressing downtown I mean it just is, and you know, there there was it wasn't that long ago that the flats were kind of hopping and they they just built the new stadium and and you did get this feeling like, hey, maybe it can come back, but it's not it's not magic you know i mean i think your point is right like if they win a championship it'll be great for the city and people love it and and there are as every time i go down there I, I get you know plenty of clevelanders telling me the good things that are happening in the medical community and and this that and the other and they're right they're they're absolutely right but but the city that was the seventh largest city in the country that that was basically you know it was chicago cleveland new york you know i mean it was sort of that that little uh, corridor that city's not coming back, you know, and I think everybody knows no. that. So, all right. So last thing I want to ask you is, and I'm just going to just, just, you know, because everybody asks you to do this, uh, your, your favorite Bill Murray story.
1: Oh, my favorite Bill Mur- Murray story. It, I, it's a long one. It, it started, uh, the first time I met him, was at a photo shoot? Esquire magazine. I think it was the Christmas, December 98 issue, I believe. Okay the the, the uh, photo editor at the time the boss wanted to make sure I was there and and just just to keep bill anchored because it was going to be a long shoot and you know bill was a, in a cranky mood things didn't go that well it was what it was <laughs> uh, as as we were leaving uh he asked if I wanted to ride he had a car and when we were in the car he said you know Disney rushmore well, I was was about to come out, okay. and Disney Disney was throwing a party at a restaurant, and he invited me to dinner if I wanted to come to dinner. I said, you know, my wife's pregnant, and uh, I wouldn't feel, you know, it was okay. He goes, well, call her, you know, and, and have her come into the city and join us. So, so, so that that evening was really cool, and and Bill Murray and Rushmore uh, got a lot of awards, yeah. best supporting actor, and was expecting to get an Oscar nomination and didn't. And the next thing I heard from Bill Murray, uh, he, his wife had bought his then wife had bought a gown for the Oscars that he was not nominated for. So they were throwing a party at, at his house uh, outside of New York city. And he was inviting Lisa, my wife and I to come. Wow! So really my fa- my favorite Bill Murray story only starts there years later. He was making Broken Flowers, directed by Jim Jarmusch, an Akron native, and, and an underrated American director. I was interviewing him for another Esquire cover, and when I got to uh, his his trailer for my first day on the job, he had brought a photograph from that Oscars party of my wife's two hands laced over her pregnant belly. Oh. So it's it's not just about a star who decides to give. Some writer, a dinner inviter, invites him to a party. A couple, three years later, he shows up at our first meeting after that with a photo that was taken at that Oscar party of my pregnant wife.
0: That is so cool.
1: Seriously. Seriously. So now, you know, so, so was,
0: so he's the coolest guy you've ever interviewed.
1: You know, I, I've had, so, I, I smoked a joint with Tupac Shakur. <laughs> now, I wasn't interviewing him at the time. It was 1993. But, I, you know, but I, I will say, you know, out of all the, the I got tattooed. I, my Chief Wahoo tattoo, I got in Dallas with Dennis Rodman in 1994 when he was playing with the Spurs. Oh, I could go on for, no, but, but, you know, as far as pure cool, Bill, you know, I don't believe in angels. I know a lot of Americans do. But there's more than a slight resemblance. But Bill Murray's like a cranky angel, basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love the guy. How could you not? How could I not? How yeah. could you not love the guy, Cranky Angel? I love yeah. that. I love that image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, Cranky. you getting that tattoo, that Wahoo tattoo in '94 with Dennis yeah. Rodman? How how yeah. easy was that to get?
1: It wasn't hard because you know this was the pre-Bulls Dennis, and and he, he when the pist, <laughs> you know the Pistons were his family. So when he went down to play for Bob Hill. You know everything went crazy, and Dennis was wide open.
0: Dennis just wanted to drink and get tattooed, yeah, and we went to a, a Soundgarden concert. He was a great guy. But my point is not the, getting the Dennis Rodman access. My point is how hard yeah. was it to get a Chief Wahoo tattoo? Oh, Joe,
1: I started getting tattoos in 1971. Okay, so <laughs> I I don't have that many. You know, I've got a Star of David, a heart that says Mother. Uh, but no, I was, uh, I was, and I was still drinking then. So I was up for both, both events, both the drinking before, in fact, I offered to get a genital piercing if Rodman, and I knew that Rodman wasn't going to agree to get his junk, you know, pierced, but I made the offer because I wanted to work my way up to a, how is Madonna in bed question. So I wanted to establish a little, a little bond of intimacy there.
0: Uh, I am so glad to get this little extra bit in just so we could have the phrase <laughs> genital piercing in this podcast. Yes. Okay, you're still I missing on my up. point. Did you have to give the guy a picture of Wahoo in order to get the Wahoo tattoo? They didn't have it. It oh, wasn't like in the book that was there. The,
1: that was the question? No. I must have had something. I might have had a cat. I don't know. I might have had a cat. You're right. I don't re- – Joe, I was drunk. But <laughs> you're right. I don't, I don't remember. How he got the outline. And, and, you know, this many years down the road, I got to say, not happy to have a racist cartoon <laughs> tattooed on my left forearm. We but want to get rid of the again, name, right? We, we,
0: we'd like to see that I, I do. I, I would like to see it. I, I mean, it's not, it doesn't
1: mean that if you left Chief Wahoo, you're a racist. It does mean that the country, in the country's DNA as we know it, there are some really dastardly things, including genocide against the natives and slavery. So if you had a cartoon, a light cartoon depicting an African American yeah. in caricature, we wouldn't need to have the discussion. Right. So if, if 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 you're a Cleveland Indians fan and the name and the and the image are, are what binds you to that team, I'm not calling you a racist. I'm calling you a moron. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's Which all. I, I think it's what I, I think if the if the front office and I and I know Mark Shapiro is not. But those guys are smart. Those guys know they're wrong. Those guys know they're on the wrong side of history. They're no different than Dan Snyder. It's it's only a trivial issue if you're a white person. Is all I'm saying. It's not up up to me to judge what offends someone uh, of of a different tribe than mine.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, what happens first? Cleveland Championship, Cleveland changing the name and getting rid of Wahoo.
1: Uh, I'm going with the championship. Yeah, me
0: too. Me too. Because I just, first of all, I, I mean, I think a championship is going to happen because that's, we have to believe that. Uh, and two, uh, I sense real intractable. It's not going to happen this year. Don't, don't, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's going to, it's going to come around. Uh, but I also sense real intractable. I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it in Washington. I, look, I, I know nobody is. Grew up a bigger Cleveland Indians fan than me. I I I lived and died Cleveland Indians baseball for so many years. I don't care about the name. I really don't. I I don't I don't get why. And I certainly don't care about Wahoo. I mean, Wahoo is a disgrace, and they've done nothing since they got Wahoo. So switch That's it up. Right. Switch it up. I don't get it.
1: They, they they've been the Naps. They've been the infants They've been the <laughs> Forest Cities, and and they've been the spiders, and yeah. they've been the blues. And I like the blues. I like I like the Cleveland Blues. I like it. It goes with the Browns. It goes with the music. Cleveland will always be a blues city in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. It's musical heritage. Anyway, I I don't get it either. I I really think uh, it's a lack of courage on the part of the organization to simply say, you know what, we're changing it up. It's the right thing to do.
0: I'm going with Cleveland Blues. I, I've been pushing spiders, but I think you're right. I think blues is even better i'm 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 I, old with blues
1: i'm afraid of spiders I, I i wouldn't say it's a phobia but it's close enough i i look i'll take anything but if given the, the choice i would avoid uh arachnids <laughs> <laughs> scott that's picks, me but
0: that's me scott thank you so much
1: it's a pleasure joe thank you